And it's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. We know the names John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, and folks like that. Serial killers in our popular culture. But we don't know the name Israel Keys, and we're going to find out why. Let me say good morning to author-journalist Maureen Callahan, author of the new book, American Predator. Good morning, Maureen. Good morning. Okay, we know the names John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer. Why don't we know Israel Keys? The Israel Keys case is uh, largely unknown to this point uh, by design. Uh, not that long after he was captured by the FBI, um, they went to the American public sort of hat in hand for help. Uh, this was a serial killer, they informed us, who had been hunting all over the United States of America for at least the past 14 years, and uh, he had only confessed to three homicides. And basically, they sort of clawed the case back from public view, and uh, part of 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 why that was is, is, is a crucial aspect of, of the book um, because this is a truly unprecedented serial killer, the likes of which the FBI had never seen before. That's frightening. Did Israel have a hit list or it was just random killing? Well, he, he told the FBI that what he did was random uh, that, that he had no victim victim type, which is extremely unusual. Uh, you know, you mentioned Ted Bundy at the top of your show, and if you think about Ted Bundy, he had a very specific victim type, uh, and Bundy was a hero of Keys. Um, Bundy went after young white women who had long straight hair parted down the middle, very specific. But Keys would take anybody. You know, he would take young, old, male, female, black, white, well-off, indigent. He would take people alone or in pairs, and not necessarily couples. You know, these could be like mother-daughter or, you know, two buddies camping. Uh, He would take them in broad daylight from uh, very public places, whether it's a campground or a mall or he would take people from their own bedrooms in suburban neighborhoods in the dead of night. I mean, he was a lethal, lethal weapon. Um, That said, uh, he had uh, serious special forces training in in the military, Um, and a lot of what went on with him in the military uh, has been hidden by the government. You know, I spent five years researching and reporting this book, uh, and what I was able to get from the federal government regarding his military career was really thin. So I was relying on what uh, guys he had served with and what his commanding officer had to say. And they all said, uh, you know, this guy was a super soldier. He was... Uh, You know, it looks like he was a trained sniper. He, according to one of them, could carry, you know, 150 pounds on his back for 13 miles and never break a sweat. Uh, But they also all, to a one, 
said he was the most disturbed individual they had ever come across. They kept their distance. Did the Army give him an honorable or, or, an honor, or a dishonorable discharge? He was discharged honorably. He left um, because his girlfriend at the time uh, became pregnant, and uh, he had been thinking about re-upping, but he also told one guy that he confided with in the Army, and this was one guy that he said he recognized something similar in. He recognized that this guy was also likely a psychopath, that he couldn't wait to get out of the Army because he had a plan to kidnap and kill people on a mass, on a mass scale. Whoa. Um, the Army, these two guys, do we wonder if there are others? How do you mean exactly? Well... These two guys were successful in the Army. Um, they didn't know what they were likely to do, and they made it out successfully. I don't wonder if there are other people in there like them. Well, you know, psychopathy is a spectrum, um, and there are very high-functioning psychopaths in society. Uh, you know, they are attracted to jobs with a high level of risk and a high level of reward. So you see psychopaths in professions that range from, you know, surgeons to CEOs. Um, they definitely, uh, some of them are attracted to the military. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a unacceptable way to uh, have an outlet for that kind of a thing. Um, with keys, I think what is really relevant here is what role did the United States military play in building a better monster? One of the fascinating aspects that I discovered uh, about keys was, you know, before I worked on this book, nothing had been known of his upbringing or adolescence. And I really, really wanted to find out uh, because one of the case agents who was tasked with that very uh, part of the case told me, you know, he, he refused to talk about his family. So, of course, the first thing she wanted to do was find out everything she could about it. Uh, and that said, the FBI never made that public. And I thought that was so strange. So, as it turns out, Keyes um, was raised off the grid in a, a, a very small remote pocket of Washington State. He was one of 10 children. He was raised by parents who were fundamentalist cult shoppers, as he called them. They were off the gridders, and they hated the federal government. They were getting ready for a race war. Um, they joined a church called the Ark which was a church that uh, was white supremacist, anti-Semitic. Um, when Keyes was about 14, he befriended two brothers there named Shane and Chevy Kehoe. Shane and Chevy Kehoe grew up to become among the FBI's 10 most wanted in the 1990s. And when the brothers were finally captured, one flipped on the other and 
told the feds that he was a co-conspirator with Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing. Now, when Keyes decides he wants to enlist in the United States Army, he tells the FBI, I didn't exist on paper. He was, as all of his siblings were, a home birth. None of the children ever saw a doctor. They never went to school. So they had no birth certificates, no social security numbers, no medical histories, no educational records to speak of, nothing to prove that they were who they said they were. So how does Israel Keyes, at a very young age, walk into a recruitment office in New Jersey and say, I want to join the United States Army, but I have no paperwork whatsoever, and, and join the United States Army? Mm-mm-mm. Do we know what happened to his siblings? His siblings are all over the United States. Uh, Now, this is another very interesting aspect of the case. Um, He's told the feds, I will talk to you, but leave my siblings alone. Do not talk to them. And they left his siblings alone. All nine of them. Whoa, again, that's interesting. Why... What was there about the case that freaked out the FBI into silence? Well, as far as I was able to tell a couple of things, and I spent about a year and a half talking in depth and in great detail to the case agents who worked this most closely, who were in the room with him every time he spoke. Um, I went to Anchorage. I went to Washington State and visited with them. They said several things. One is, to their great surprise, uh, not long after he was captured, and they didn't know they were hunting a serial killer at first. They were looking for someone uh, of interest in the abduction of a, of a teenage barista in Anchorage. She had disappeared uh, from, from her place of business early one evening in February 2012, uh, and she was never seen again, and the case really went cold very fast. So when they got him, he quickly said, I will talk to you, but I want the death penalty and I want it fast. And he said, I know the federal government did the same thing for Timothy McVeigh, who to many people who I grew up with is considered a hero. So if you got it for McVeigh, I want it for me. I want this done in a year. And if you get me the death penalty, I will give you the names and locations of all of my victims. His second demand was keep me out of the national news media. I know this would be a huge story. And if my name comes up, and he, he said the reason was to protect his little girl. At the time of his arrest, his daughter was 10. And uh, every single agent I talked to said they truly believed uh, as, as deviant a psychopath as he was, that he adored his daughter. And he said, I don't want her growing up Googling me and seeing everything I've done. I want her to have a chance at a normal life. Uh, so he said, keep my name out of the national news media, and I will cooperate. And so they were, they, they believed him. I mean, they were terrified. As, as not long after his capture, these agents called Quantico, and they got the top 
criminal profilers on the phone, and they said, listen to these interviews we're doing. Please help us. Tell us how to leverage him to get as much information out of him as we possibly can. And very quickly, the response from Quantico came back, and they said, we don't know what to tell you because we've never seen one like this before. They said, the only thing we can tell you is that Israel Keys is one of the most terrifying subjects we have ever come across. And you just have to keep them talking because the smarter ones usually like to talk. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Maureen Callahan, journalist, author, author of the new book, American Predator, the story of a serial killer we don't know a whole lot about. We'll be back after these messages. And we're back here on WIP Sunday with Maureen Callahan, author of American Predator. My name's Peter Solomon. Maureen, it's kind of scary to think he bred. I mean, if there's a little girl out there with all kinds of genes, because you got to wonder about nature versus nurture. Well, you know, um, when I spoke with the agents, uh, they were all very protective of her, of his daughter. Uh, I, I, I consider her his final victim. You know, she's, she's really an innocent in all of this, and uh, I, I purposely did not name her. Um, you know, she, uh, by all accounts was a, and is a, a lovely girl. Um, he's himself in terms of nature versus nurture. That's definitely one of the things I explore in the book because how and why a monster like this gets made is, uh, the great existential question that is hung over criminal profiling since its inception. Um, you know, I don't know if, if, if you're watching this right now, but I'm sure many of your listeners are. I just started season two of Mindhunter on Netflix, mm-hmm. um, which is based on John Douglas's famous book. John Douglas was the sort of godfather of criminal profiling. Um, and Mindhunter is one of the books that actually Keyes told the FBI he learned a lot from. He said he read it for the first time when he was 14 and realized that he uh, wasn't alone, that there were others like him out there. Uh, I also, I spoke with Roy Hazelwood before he passed away, um, and Hazelwood was another legendary profiler at the Bureau. He was in there from the ground floor, um, and he wrote uh, a landmark book called Dark Dreams. Uh, and this was another text that Keyes told the agents he had read and learned from. And, in fact, the agents were quite surprised when Keyes said, you know, I've learned from you guys. And so every time he referenced a book or a film, whether it was fiction or nonfiction, they would run out and get it. And a lot of these agents were building small libraries in their own offices to, to better understand him. Um, and so I spoke to Hazelwood, and I said, what do you think, you know, are they born or are they made? And he said, I was, I was waiting for you to ask me that question. And he went on to relay the story of uh, the earliest um, manifestation he had ever come across of psychopathy, of extreme psychopathy. Uh, and it was a three-year-old boy who had been caught by his mother 
attempting the act of autoerotic asphyxiation. And she was so alarmed, she took him to the pediatrician, and the pediatrician said, don't worry, he'll grow out of it. And that little boy grew up to become a serial killer. So even an expert such as Roy Hazelwood had to concede that we're really not that much more close uh, to figuring out the nature versus nurture question, but it is certainly why I very much wanted to explore Keyes' upbringing, and when I did uh, gain access after, you know, I, I basically I had to sue the federal government for a lot of these documents for his court-ordered psychological profile uh, examination, which I knew would be the greatest self-report we would have of his upbringing to date. Um, and I spoke to his mother, uh, who had never spoken to a, a reporter before, um, and got like a, a, a really uh, a, a pretty detailed account of his upbringing. And his psychopathy really did manifest from a very early age. I mean, even his mother, when she spoke to me, she spoke to me of what she called Israel's evil. She she did not sidestep it. Mm. What about the baby mama? She, too, um, is really a victim in this. She, she had no idea, uh, and this is not uncommon among serial killers, where they can sort of compartmentalize. Um, BTK is one, for example. You know, he lived a church-going life uh, as a father and a husband, and his wife and his children had no idea uh, that, that he was an active and lethal, uh, sexually motivated serial killer. And so the same holds true for the mother of Keyes' child uh, and, and for the girlfriend that he was living with in Anchorage at the time of his arrest. You know, his girlfriend at the time was a highly educated woman. She was very successful. She worked as a travel nurse. When Keyes was arrested, she said, there's no way. You, you have the wrong person. On the night in question, uh, he was home by around 11 or 12, came in the house multiple times to check on his daughter, make sure she was asleep, check on her, see if she was asleep. He had to wake up at 5 the next morning. He was taking his little girl on a cruise. They had a cab coming to take them to the airport. She said, there's no way he abducted this girl. I, I saw him. There's no way. Uh, and at first, the FBI wasn't sure whether or not she was an accomplice. Uh, but they quickly realized she was not. She truly had no idea who she was living with. Well, it points out the issue that many serial killers can be quite charming. Yeah, I mean, this is another aspect of this kind of extreme psychopathy. Psychopaths in general can be very charming. It's part of uh, their learned behavior, how to blend in. You know, when Keyes was caught, he said something to the FBI that really struck me uh, about the way in which he tried to move throughout the world. Uh, he said, I was trying to seem like a normal person. And that to me was such an interesting statement because 
itself is 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 the admission that uh, he knew he wasn't normal. He mm. knew it. Were the people he killed killed on the spot, abducted, sexually or otherwise abused? So Keyes was, for the most part, an opportunist. He had fantasies, uh, and and he had ideal victims uh, each time he went out to hunt. But he would, and again, this is the way he put it to the FBI, he would take what he could get. So here's what he would do, and 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 this modus operandi uh, again was something that took the FBI way back. They had no idea uh, that anyone was operating this way. Um, he had buried what he called these kill kits all over the United States of America, and they're still out there. Uh, many of them have yet to be discovered. These were and are uh, five-gallon Home Depot buckets um, that Keys filled with guns and ammunition, ropes, zip ties, cash from bank robberies that he had previously committed. He was also a bank robber and an arsonist. Um, and Drano, which he figured out could accelerate human decomposition. When Keys felt the urge, he would book a flight, and when he boarded the plane, he would turn off his cell phone and rip the battery out. And now he was going to use only cash. So he was going dark, as he called it. He would land in a major city. He would rent a car. He would drive hundreds or thousands of miles and dig up a kit. Then he would go on the hunt. And now he's looking for anyone who crosses his path who's vulnerable. And it could be a man or it could be a woman. It didn't matter. He was going to take them, torture them, rape them, and murder them. Now, what he would do is take them from one location. Again, it could be broad daylight. It could be a campground. It could be a national park. He would take them, move them to another location where he would do whatever he planned to do to them, murder them, move the remains to yet another location, preferably across state lines. So now he's hopscotching, and he's taken a victim. Let's say he's taken someone from a campground in Tennessee. There's nothing to say that those victims are actually natives of Tennessee. They might be vacationing from Florida. So they go missing, and they're not reported missing from Florida. They went missing in Tennessee, but their remains are now across state lines, probably never to be found. And once he disposes of those remains, and he's such an expert that he's leaving no DNA behind, he's getting back in his car, and he's putting thousands of miles between himself and that crime scene immediately. So he's virtually undetectable. He's what I call in the book an analog killer in a digital age, and it made him again, one of the most uh, ingenious, I hate to say it, but uh, ingenious serial killers the FBI had ever seen. Did he use guns, knives, pieces of wood? His, um, he had preferred methods. 
Um, he liked uh, to stab uh, with knives, and that's not unusual among lust-driven serial killers. Um, he preferred manual strangulation. Um, he said he only ever shot one victim, um, and that was uh, the male part of a, of a couple that he abducted uh, from their bedroom in a suburb of uh, Vermont called Essex. Um, and when he told the FBI about that night and what he had done, uh, and this was also a case that had gone cold very quickly and really would never have been solved had he not confessed, uh, the FBI at first didn't believe what he was telling them. It sounded so incredible uh, that one person could have done what he did in the span of mere hours, uh, leaving no evidence behind. Um, but there are cold cases I explore in the book, uh, and I included those very uh, specifically. These are cold cases that after Keyes, his, his existence was finally made public uh, by the FBI. Um, law enforcement all over the country flooded the FBI with tips with emails, with phone calls, begging them to look into very specific cold cases that they thought looked likely to be the work of Israel Keys, or at least possible. And another key document I was able to access, uh, which also had never been made public before, was the FBI's secret internal timeline of Keys' travels. Now, they put online in 2013... Uh, a timeline that is not nearly as detailed. Why, I don't know. I don't know why they kept this internal one with much more detail secret. It's very odd. Um, But there are definite high-profile cases, some that your listeners, Peter, might have read about in the newspaper or in People magazine or seen on an episode of Dateline or 48 Hours uh, that not only match his M.O., but that the FBI can cross-reference keys being in the area where these people, these victims went missing. Um, One of the things that he told the FBI, and, and he knew when they caught him, that he was going to eventually wind up known to the American public uh, on the level of a Ted Bundy. And part of him wanted that. He wanted them to know that in the pantheon of monsters, he was a great. Um, And he said to them something that struck me as almost ridiculously cinematic and self-aggrandizing. He said, one thing I won't do is go after kids. I won't mess with kids. And he said that after the birth of his daughter, something shifted in him profoundly. This struck me as kind of a very self-serving moral code that uh, was not that far afield from the fictional serial killer Dexter, who Keyes certainly was aware of. And that serial killer had a moral code. He only went after other serial killers. He channeled his deviancy for the ostensible good. 
But in that admission, he's saying that after my daughter was born, I, I, I decided I would never mess with kids, implies that before she was born, he had. And uh, I certainly think that he did. And I believe that his very first victims were two little girls who separately went missing in Colville, which is a small, small town he lived in in Washington, uh, during, during his adolescence. And in fact, uh, the FBI later in the investigation pointedly asked him about those, those little girls. Now, he claimed he had vaguely heard about those crimes, vaguely heard about when their bodies were recovered. And that, frankly, Peter, is ridiculous. Uh, those cases would have mesmerized uh, the budding serial killer that was Israel Keys. And in fact, the first little girl to go missing was 12-year-old. Her name was Julie Harris. She was Colville's most famous resident. She was a Paralympian. She was a Special Olympian who had won, I believe, the gold medal. She was missing both of her feet. She wore prosthetic feet. What more vulnerable victim for a teenage budding serial killer to go after than a little girl with no feet. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's frightening. One more set of commercials there, Maureen Callahan. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back and into the home stretch with Maureen Callahan, author of the new book, American Predator. My name's Peter Solomon. Maureen, we have a caller this morning. So let's say good morning to James from West Philadelphia. James, your question? Yes, good morning, Peter, and good morning to your author. Uh, well, I don't mean to sound like a creep, but this is one of my favorite subjects to read about. <laughs> uh, Ms. Callahan, first question. Is your book the first known book on uh, Israel Keys, or have there been others, or is your book the first one that you know of uh, about him? Yeah, so there was a, a book published um, – several years ago called Devil in the Darkness, Um, and that book uh, was, I would say, probably the first. Um, My book is the first, however, to have been done with the cooperation of the Bureau. So they gave me what the agents later told me I didn't know at the time, and probably for the better was unparalleled access to uh, these case agents who were, they were told by the FBI, you can talk to Maureen about whatever you want oh, and whatever oh, oh. you feel comfortable telling her. So I, I was the first to have access to them, and I also was the first to get access to the case file, uh, both from the FBI and the Anchorage Police Department, as well as multiple witness statements, other documents. Um, It's really the first comprehensive look at the Israel Keys case from front to back. Okay. Quick question. Now, I I know you touched on it maybe uh, before the commercial break, but how many, I mean, have they estimated how many people they think he killed? I mean, do they have a rough estimate? Um, And then second question, did did he ever take a whole family at once? Great question. So the official line is that he killed 11 people. Uh, he told them in interrogations less than 12, 
which one of the agents who uh, is like a math guy considered to be 11 because his reasoning was most people round by fives or tens. There are other agents on this case who believe he killed far more people, and I am definitely in that camp. This is someone who from a very early age, we're talking adolescence, was planning how to take and kill people. Uh, and he traveled with this express purpose. His travel was all about killing, taking and killing. Did he ever take an entire family? That I have never heard or yet come across uh, a family, although he did take a married couple and okay. killed them successfully. And he, I do believe he should be looked at in a very famous case, uh, which is the um, murder in broad daylight of a mother-daughter hiker pair in Washington State. And that case made national headlines and is still cold, and the FBI can put Israel Keys in that area at that time. And he is still living. He, he wasn't put to death. He's, he's still living. Um, so that question is very interesting as well, James, and it's one I don't answer because I have had readers come up to me and say that they're in the middle of the book and they are stopping themselves from going online and Googling or wikiing him because they don't want the ending spoiled, which I find remarkable okay. in this day and age, so I don't want to spoil it for anyone who might not want to know the, the ending here. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you, James. It's a truly frightening story, Maureen. This story is, as they say, stranger than fiction. And had this been a novel, I would have had to remove at least three threads here. I would have had to remove three parts of this narrative because you wouldn't believe it. It, it would seem like way too much. Uh, and it's what makes this case so endlessly fascinating. It's what makes Israel Keys, even inside the Bureau, a subject of true fascination and study. There's a very little-known uh, institute that the Bureau has, which I only learned about in the course of this book, and it's called the Evil Minds Research Museum. And it's a secret facility where serial killers are studied. Uh, and, and they're studied using primarily artifacts and belongings that the family members and friends have provided uh, that have been recovered during searches, uh, you know, diaries, uh, photo albums, uh, childhood mementos, uh, anything like that, personal belongings, and these typically include, you know, movies and books on the subject. Um, and Keys is a, is a subject of study there, uh, probably their most recent. Um, and I truly believe that, that his case uh, is one that uh, we all should know about, um, the Bureau certainly thinks there's a lot to learn from him. But not only that, uh, there are multiple cold cases that I think uh, need to be reopened. I think that there are, as, as happened when the FBI initially went public with Keys, plenty of people out there who might learn about this case and think, oh, my God, 
I, I want, I want him looked at for the disappearance of someone I know or someone I loved. Um, and Peter, the last thing I'll say about uh, why his case I think is so relevant and important for us to know about and to know more about is that it, it became more than just another serial killer case, albeit a fascinating one. Um, at a certain point in this investigation, the FBI reclassified it. And this is secret. It, again, it's never been made public, but I, I obtained the documents to prove it. Uh, they reclassified the Israel Keys case from serial murder to terrorism. And they have never made that public, and they have never said why. My goodness. It strikes me, just as a sidelight, that he never killed mommy or daddy. You know what? I spoke to the then lead case agent. His name was Steve Payne. Brilliant guy. And we talked about his father and how little Keyes spoke about his father, which to all the agents was very telling because they thought the father must have been extremely significant if he wasn't talking about him. And in fact, when he went into the service, a lot of the guys he served with, including the commanding officer, told the FBI that the impression they got was that Keyes had been severely abused by his father. Um, and that he got a call from one of his younger sisters at one point and was overheard telling the sister not to run away. Uh, she was desperate and she was about to run away. And he, he basically said, you're unprepared for the real world. Uh, so stay put. And if it gets that bad, I will come and get you. Um, and so Special Agent Payne told me, uh, that the father had died under mysterious circumstances. Um, Keys had left the home at that point, so he would have been in his early to mid-20s. And Payne said, based on nothing but his gut, he would never rule out Israel Keys in the death of his own father. And Mama Keys, though, didn't do anything to protect him, did they? Did she? That's the thing. Uh, as far as I can tell, she didn't know or didn't want to see uh, what may have been going on with the father. Um, regardless, those children were all raised in what I would call abusive circumstances. If any of your listeners have read the excellent memoir by Tara Westover called Educated, uh, her upbringing was very, very similar to the one that Keyes had. You know, he and his siblings were raised, uh, you know, in the woods uh, for the first seven years that they moved to Colville. They lived in tents. They lived in tents. Their father was building them a house by hand. And uh, Israel had to learn as a child how to hunt and kill game and dress it and feed his family with it. Uh so that, in and of itself, you know, it's a, it's an abusive childhood for sure. Um, I think that part of the rage that Keyes exhibited, because he targeted mothers and children, for sure, and I think that part a, a huge part of that was rage at his own mother for not protecting him. 
Well, I think we do know with some degree of certainty that scratch a serial killer, you'll find an abused child. You know, it's so fascinating. Often, yes. And, uh, but one of the, um, one of the source materials I referenced in the book, uh, the New York Times piece that ran several years ago, and it is chilling. It was called, Can a Nine-Year-Old Be a Psychopath? And this was the true story of an average American family with three children, uh, lovely home, normal, decent parents. They had three children, and the middle child was clearly a psychopath. And the mother spoke freely to the reporter. The father did not. Um, but she detailed such extreme moments where the middle child was causing physical harm to her other children. And she was petrified that, that her child was going to kill one of her other children, if not her and or her husband. And she didn't know what to do or where to go. And she couldn't explain where this was coming from. He wasn't abused. He wasn't neglected. There, there was nothing else wrong. And again, it's so fascinating, Peter, because it goes to this nature versus nurture question, which we still are only beginning to try to understand. That's true. And I'd like to say thank you to Maureen Callahan for telling us one of the scariest stories I've ever heard. It's in the new book, American Predator. Thank you, Maureen Callahan. Thank you, Peter. It's been my pleasure. And my pleasure, too. And it's been addition, another edition of WIP Sunday. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always provocative discussion. Your opinion, Sonny's reactions. Finally, there's nothing long to say, but try, please try to stay cool this rather tropical day. Nothing left to say, but be with you again soon.